Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I, for one, am shocked that a centuries-long eugenics project didn't go as planned. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and Anna, the lack of coffee is the real mind killer. This is Space the Nation, where we talk about science fiction through the lens of politics and culture. We have day jobs doing that stuff, and, and this is not our day job. But we're using our day jobs, right, Dan? We are. We're exploiting it. We're, this is our side hustle in which we take our day jobs and have a lot more fun with it. <laughs> and speaking of fun, we've been doing some real downers lately. And we had decided together to embark on hot sci-fi summer. And I have decided we're going to do like a belated uh, Pride Month with that because I think we just haven't done enough fun queer stuff. So we are focusing on things that are upbeat or uplifting or fun in some way. And I am looking for the bonus contribution of maybe, you know, getting some queer folks represented. I'm very excited that one of the books that hits all of those marks is Victories Greater Than Death. And we are going to do a special episode interviewing the author, Charlie Jane Anders. And then coming right up, we're going to have fun in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Our, our alternate identity is, in fact, a Marvel scan account. <laughs> this is true. There might even be cosplay involved. Who knows? But that said, if you as the listener feel like, you know, you want things in addition to those topics, well, you know what? The best way for that to happen is it is for you to become a patron. Because if we get 250 patrons, we will have another patron-only episode in which the topic will be chosen by the patrons themselves. We just did our previous one, which we talked about 28 days later. And so an excellent reason to become a patron for as little as $3 a month is that you get to choose what we're going to talk about next, hopefully. There are other benefits, Dan. Can you can you tell me what the other benefits are? The other benefits are at, at higher levels of uh, patronage, you get certain uh, excellent kinds of swag. In furthermore, there is a Discord account that is extremely lively. Um, it's a nice group of that people. Someday Dan will visit. <laughs> I have visited, but I clearly I, I I'm like the I'm like the distant neighbor from Canada that occasionally <laughs> pops out, or like the far flung relative from Canada. But Anna is a much more robust participant in the Discord. But more importantly, I think the participants of the Discord are robust friends of each other. And so it's a nice little community and you can potentially be a part of it. Yep. And also you get episodes early if that's something that yes. you're into. Uh, today, mm-hmm. we are talking about a, a much requested source material. It is the book Dune by Frank Herbert. Yeah, so this is a cannon fodder episode, to be clear. Yes. And that, it, you know, so we, cannon fodder meaning we are going to take a classic work of science fiction and subject it to a modern uh, analysis and determine whether or not it really still belongs in the canon or is it in fact really more fodder now. And Dan, why did you think we should do this as cannon fodder? <laughs> I, I think there are, there are multiple reasons for me. As someone who had not read the book, frankly, before doing this episode, first, how can I resist a novel that that contains multiple appendices to explain the world building behind the novel? So, like, when I first got this book, you know, I was starting to flip through it, and I was uh, looking at the table of contents, and I was first reaction was, oh, my, that's a lot of pages for this book. And then the second was, four appendices? Four? Oh, yeah. And then, you know, plus a glossary. <laughs> cartographic notes oh yes color me soul that is an academic stream and then also of course you know no one can stand athwart the timothy chalamet 
engine and 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 declare stop that's not how life works so we are aware that there is a, a denise villeneuve uh, film starring timothy chalamet coming out uh, i believe in october i wanted to be prepared for that i wanted to you know actually have read the book as well as and we will have in a future episode uh, go over actually a future schlock and odd episode i believe go over the david lynch version of dune that was filmed in 1984 and uh, schlock or awe may be somewhat self-explanatory, I guess. It's the cousin. It's a to, doppelganger. As it it's a <laughs> to cannon fodder. And as far as I, why I think Dune should be on a cannon fodder episode, I mean, come on, it is Dune. It's fucking Dune. It's man. Dune. I mean, yes, yes. Like I hadn't read it, but I knew that it was a really goddamn important novel. So right. yes, this is something obvious. All right, Anna, and let's get to the story behind the story for Frank Herbert's Dune. I will apologize in advance to our listeners. <laughs> Although some of you have said you want long episodes, so <clears throat> this might be a long episode. There is a lot of story behind the story here, both um, with a specific book, Dune, and with Frank Herbert, who is a fascinating character. <laughs> I'm going to try to stick to the story behind the book, Dune. Hmm. I was pleased and amused to find out that it is based on his experience doing research for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This is correct. On Dan. I believe it was like the sand dunes in Oregon. Dunes. Right? Yes, yes. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and not just sand dunes, but using non-native grasses right. to fortify those dunes. Mm-hmm. Paul is loosely based on JFK, huh. believe it or not. The whole book owes a lot to a book called The Sabres of Paradise, which is a fictionalized account of the Caucasian uprising against the Russians, which I presume you could tell us more about if you thought about it a bit. No? Yes, I could. Not a famous uprising? I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Caucasian threw me for a second. Threw you? Yes. Oh, you mean the Caucasus. Okay, yes. That makes sense. Yes, totally fair. I mean the Caucasus. It threw me too. And since this book does have a lot of eugenics in it, at first I was like, oh, well, this explains a lot. But But no, no, they mean Caucasian in a different way. That's fair. Yes. That book was written by a female uh, British travel writer named Leslie Blanche. It's supposed to be very good. And... It borrows just a lot of nomenclature and also some of the sayings that hmm. uh, this woman found oh, when she was traveling, okay. like uh, about the killing with the tip of the knife versus the blade. Like that's apparently a Caucasian saying. Mm. <laughs> um, and again, I'm going to say that the whole podcast could be about Herbert. Or I have their- vetoed that decision by Anna. <laughs> I just want to be very clear about that. So listeners, if you're upset about that, it, that's on me. It's all, it's all Dan. Yeah. So his politics are unusual <laughs> let's say uh and evolving his, they, they weren't they weren't constant it would be a six they so. were uh, yes they, they were evolving and always a bit yeah unexpected yep. let's say mm-hmm. he was born to the children which is to say his grandparents were card-carrying socialists mm-hmm. who helped found a socialist commune in washington state which is where he is from mm-hmm. and Instead of making him a socialist, this sort of turned him into a very libertarian kind of live off the land kind of guy. He had a lot of close experiences with the indigenous uh, people of that area and knew a lot about, you know, camping, living off the land, et cetera, et cetera. And just became incredibly anti-government, which is sort of funny that he was working for the Department of Agriculture when he came up with this idea. But he hated the government, hated taxes, hated social welfare programs. And it sounds like that was sort of a little bit in his life all the time and just got more and more vehement about it. Uh, He was an NRA member and a Reagan supporter. And 
There's a place where the books and his life intersect in a funny way, which is the reason why the tail end of the series uh, books kind of suck (laughs) is that he was writing them very quickly in order to pay back taxes because he had refused to pay taxes for many years. People ask about his politics all the time online. If you Google Frank Herbert politics, there's a lot of like (laughs) Reddit discussions about it and there's essays about it. And I honestly think it's really hard to pin him down. Um, The impression I got, and this will come up also when we talk about the book itself, is that there's a Rorschach test to this book in that it is sufficiently ambiguous in some ways. And, And Frank Herbert's life is sufficiently ambiguous that you can implant or present any sort of version of it that you want i guess yeah that's a good take because i think he just wasn't consistent he was human right which is to say he wasn't consistent but he was inconsistent in a very interesting way i would say i also like i have to admit i i now kind of want to see the alternative version of parks and rec where nick offerman's (laughs) character is in fact frank herbert or like winds up pursuing (laughs) the frank herbert arc because you basically described Nick Off. I, I can't oh, remember. Well, the, the, well yeah. actually, to add to that, yeah. uh, for a brief moment in his life, Frank Herbert was a Republican speechwriter. There you go. A, a speechwriter to a Republican senator, mm-hmm. which I want to know about those speeches because, like, given <laughs> Paul's oration. Like, I'm trying to picture a senator now saying, <laughs> fear, fear is the mind killer. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then his, as far as his personal politics go, I'm going to just two quotes, which I liked. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them, I vote against whoever's in office, mm-hmm. which is nice and consistent. And then his idea for a perfect political program would be to select 13 people at random and give them all the power they need. And then they have to leave after a year. And his thinking behind that is that well, any mistakes they make, they only last a year, which is a weird thing for a guy interested in ecology to say, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry, as a political scientist, I'm just going to veto this. It's a really dumbass idea and would lead to massive problems. I, I, it doesn't yeah. make any sense at all, yeah. really, except for, I don't think, yeah, he's. it's funny. He put a lot more thought into the plot of his novels in, over, you know, mm-hmm. thinking through like what this would look like. You know, I mean, to be fair, like, you know, it's the classic Marx thing, right? Where like really good, interesting writers are often really good at criticizing other things rather than creating things of their own. Yeah. And as we'll get into further, I yeah. think Dune is a kind of brilliant set of criticisms. Yeah. But yeah, as a program, not so much. Right. So, Dan, would you like to hear why we, we put this up for Cannon Fodder? Or actually, I take that back. Dan, why don't you tell me why you think this should be up for Cannon Fodder? I mean, it should be up for Cannon Fodder because... Obviously, the canon part will not be contested. We will be talking about the legacy of of Dune in a whole variety of different ways. But also, you know, it's just it's um, there's some stuff in it that makes you cringe. Maybe. Yeah, that's. Well, I think we we sort of have to we have to talk about the plot in order to really talk about the things that are potentially problematic. But it's not like it's not like I read this without wincing once or twice. But I I, I will also you know to preview I winced far less than I was expecting to be honest. Well, I'm going to try to, to, you know, there are some spoilers in the discussion of why this is canon or fodder, but I I will proceed. Again, there's too much to talk about here, so I'll try just to hit the highlights. The main criticism that you find is that it's a fetishization of imperialism and fascism and fanaticism and eugenics. And I will say, Richard Spencer is on record as saying this is one of his favorite books. (sighs) So, all right, this is what I'm not saying. I want to make clear, I'm not saying that's a 
good reasons. Yeah, like but th- that I is, have to those say, are common reasons. No, that no, 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 I know. And this is one of the things that drives me batty, which is like a, a common criticism of a work is, oh yeah, well this person you really don't like loves that book, and I'm like. That's not a valid reason. Like, generally good books are going to have fans, you know, who are going to be people you admire and also fans that you, like, don't want to have anything to do with. And I don't think that's a – it's not a great reason. It's disturbing. Uh, okay. I grant you that. Uh, speaking of fans you don't want to have anything to do with, Elon Musk, also a big fan of this book. <laughs> and I thought of him because one of the funnier criticisms I read of the book was that uh, Paul is the ultimate neoliberal tech mogul. Talking revolution while imposing hierarchy, ruthless in pursuit of new markets, boasting boasting of disruption and creative destruction. That does sound like tech mogulese. It so. does. It just doesn't sound like Paul, but that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Rorschach test, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then the stuff that's actually more resonant for me mm-hmm. is the stuff that's just, you could say, merely cringy. Yeah. But it's super cringy, which is the essentialization of, of gender and mm-hmm. um, fat. Uh, phobia, which I will say did not, of course, because it's something that I think this whole culture has been on a journey on, mm-hmm. you know, for many years to kind of realize like how much we talk about fatness as a character defect. Yeah. Or as a character trope. Yeah, yeah. Or as a character trope. I yeah. did not notice that as a particular, I was like, oh yeah, he's gross, you know, <laughs> when I was 15. Sure. Right. The yeah. Baron is terrible and gross and stay away from him. And of course, the other thing about the Baron is that he's portrayed as gay and Mm -hmm. it's sort of a trope to have like the villainous gay character. And I noticed also that almost any character that is even partway evil (laughs) in this book is described as being effeminate. So they always speak in a high pitched voice. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, like Herbert was a crank. And that's another reason why you might knock it off. I will say there's many good defense Mm -hmm. of, of this book as well. I think. What we have here is what I will refer to as the Starship Troopers problem, <laughs> which is to say that you have a, a a work that is a criticism of something abhorrent, uh-huh. which is to say imperialism, fascism, I would say even consumerism. And it's such yeah. a well done satire slash critique that it feels almost like an homage. Mm-hmm. That's the problem, I think, with this book. And, and it, later books make very clear that Herbert intends Paul to be a monster, that he is not, in fact, a hero. So there's that. And then I found a couple of really funny, um, very postmodern um, essays about Dune, one of which argued against it being a white savior narrative because it argues that the Fremen are not white, which I'd... Okay. No, you know? that that I, that was true. That was something I definitely inferred from reading. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah you know, I it, I think it is. It maybe says more about whiteness than anything else that we assume. Many times, people would assume that they are white because they're not described as anything but really. Mm-hmm. I mean, they tan. Well, it's know? also the eyes. Like the most common, the 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 thing that stands out about the Freeman is the fact that their eyes right. are all blue. Yeah, right. And also that Paul is not actually a white savior, which is actually. That might be the strongest evidence that it's not a white savior <laughs> narrative because he doesn't actually save them, you know? Yeah, although so part of the problem here, I think, and we'll talk about this later, is that it's it's a question of whether you're, we're talking about Dune, the novel, and then stop there or right. then all, everything that right. happens, you know, all the successive novels. It's very novels. hard to separate them. But yeah. the, the people that argue that the Fremen have agency, mm-hmm. I mean, that's their main argument is that the Fremen are not just pawns in, yeah. in this narrative, that they're actually given a fair amount of power. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what keeps it from being merely a white savior narrative. I will also say I found a couple of uh, kind of fun essays sort of defending Dune on a feminist 
point, saying that the Ben Gazeret are actually good models of feminine power. I think I don't <sighs> agree. I think that's really that's some, probably some essentialist stuff talking. Yes, but Anna, know? the tone of your voice is convincing me, so I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist that one. <laughs> And I actually, I will say, I, we have to get started with the plot, but yeah. this book, I remember it had the same effect on me when I was 15, which is that I became so aware of all of my, like, tics. Your verbal tics? My verbal tics, and also, like, the way I talk, and even, like, meditation. I was me- I, I meditate fairly regularly, mm-hmm. and um, my meditation's been different over the past few days, because I, I can't... <laughs> Because I can't stop comparing it to the prana bunu. Whatever. whatever yeah. <laughs> I have to say that there is rich material for a spoof of the Bene Gesserit, I guess, using like Valley Girl Up Talk or what have you. Like, yeah. I, would, I would love to see that done. But, you know, that that's a subject for another. Uh, I, another w- brief another story, which is um, I had a weird set of desires as a a kid, which is that I I liked being a little punk rocker and, you know, I liked uh, being a nerd, but also I really wanted to be on the cheerleading squad. And I tried out. (gasps) Oh, wow. And Uh the thing is, is that at some point someone told me your voice carries more if you pitch it low. Hmm. And so I did my entire cheerleading routine pitching my voice as low as possible. And it probably sounded like I was trying to sound like a dude because it was like, go, Team. I didn't make it. Oh. I know. I, was, I want to know the, the alternative timeline where you made it as a cheerleader. Like, what would have happened as a result? Uh, I don't think I would have gone to UFC. Ooh. That's my prediction. And when I take the spice <laughs> and look at all the different waves that emanate out from that nexus, mm-hmm. I believe that I probably wouldn't have gone to UFC. Anyway, Dan, so much fun to catch up. Yes. Let's get to the plot. All right. Let us move to the plot. Act one. Why would you leave Kaladin? So to set the stage, uh, Dune takes place about, I think, 11 or 12,000 years in the future. Man has expanded to the stars, but without the assistance of artificial intelligence, thanks to the Butlerian Jihad, which is interesting term that I've heard used a lot and is referenced in Dune, but like sort of talked about for like a paragraph at most, and then we never talk about it again. But essentially, the Butlerian Jihad means that there's no AI and no like advanced uh, no computers. computers. Yeah, no computers yeah. in this world. The galaxy is ruled by a quasi-feudal arrangement consisting of, I believe, the Emperor, the Great Houses, the Spacing Guild, the Bene uh, Gesserit, as we said, and so forth. Our protagonist is one Paul Atreides, is the son of a duke and his concubine, Jessica, who is also a member of the Bene Gesserit. The duke has agreed to relocate his family and forces from the relatively posh world of Caladan. Oh, relatively? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, we don't get that much description of Caladan, it sounds, actually. It sounds super fucking posh, I yeah, would say. exactly. Like, especially if you're talking relative to Dune. Right. Yes, fair <laughs> enough. Where the, the where the Great Plains would be relatively lush. You True. Know? Fair enough. Um, lush. But anyway, yeah, they the Duke's family has resided in Caladan for 26 generations, and, but they have agreed to move to the desert world of Arrakis, the sole repository of the spice called Melange. The spice is addictive, but also has many other attractive qualities. It prolongs life and also enables celestial navigation for all of the spacing guild uh, and their transports. Arrakis had previously been ru- uh, under the harsh rule of the Harkonnen, but the agreement is, is that the Duke will take over. 
this seems like a promotion, so everyone's happy, right? No, 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 no. Except everyone thinks it's a trap, including the Duke himself. And it is very clearly a trap. The question is whether the Duke and his lieutenants can turn the tables on the Harkonnen and their allies and suss out who in their entourage might be the sort of moles that are trying to bring the Duke down. Before they depart from Caladan, however, uh, Paul is tested by the Reverend Mother, who is the sort of, I think, chief of the Bene Gesserit, I'm not entirely sure, because it is believed that he might be the fulfillment of a prophecy, as he has dreams that appear to be premonitions and could actually be the one man who has the same properties of the Bene Gesserit. Grumble, 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 grumble. Yeah, 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 yeah. Paul passes this test, which is called the Gom Jabbar. This is not surprising as he has been trained in the ways of the Bene Gesserit by his mum and in the ways of the Mentat by his father's advisor. The Mentats being, who, who are the... The Mentats know. being, I believe, like sort of, you know, chief of staff-like people who are trained to think like computers is yes. the way I would put it. Anna, I kind of felt about Herbert's world building the same way I did about Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness, which is it was a bit of a slog at first. And it grabbed me more as I went along and as I like adapted to the, you know, the language that was being used. I'm curious if you had the same response. You know, it... <laughs> What surprised me rereading this was how good it is. <laughs> <laughs> meaning, meaning, when I was a kid, I enjoyed this, the same things about it as I did about fucking Fountainhead, which is like there's a really awesome protagonist who's like a hero who beats all the odds and tells you know tells everybody to fuck off, right? Like mm-hmm. that's the thing that teenagers like about these kinds of books, yeah, and that's yeah. sort of what I thought I kind of liked about it mm-hmm. was also that a teenager is a hero in it, right? Right. While I think of myself as being a perceptive teen, I did not remember it being as well written mm-hmm. as it is. It's incredibly well written. And I found the first chapters not so much a slog as just, I'm trying to make a distinction between slog and slow going. I don't know quite what I mean, except that it doesn't well, move a, very fast. Yeah, no, there's there, but it's, I, it's But slow. I was like fine reading it, but it wasn't like, oh, God, got to keep going, you know? I mean, you're wondering when there, I, I, like, I guess when I was reading the first chapters, like, all right. You're setting the table. I get it. Let's get to Arrakis and get the plot moving. And but but that said, the world building is significant and it's important. And so like, I, it's not that I didn't like it. It was just that it took me. There were a couple of tries where I'm like, okay, I'm going to read ten more pages. I'm gonna read 10 you know, more. here's a, here's another difference. I think for me, also, I I honestly think at least in the movie, the Lynch movie, they call it Arrakis. By the way, Arrakis. Arrakis. How is it supposed sure? to be? Is it Arrakis? I don't. I'm not even sure. You said you've said you were saying. Uh, I don't know what you were saying. Oh. I don't know. We'll both say what we say, yeah, and yeah. one of us will be closer to right, and then you guys can argue about it in the Discord. Fair enough. Ooh. So rereading it, I was struck by how the Caladan stuff is actually pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it seems like he's taking his time, but it is really integral to the plot. And if you take a perspective that, like, this isn't a waste of time, you know, like, this isn't just table setting, like, this is... A little more than that, I think it goes a little bit smoother. I will say so. The thing, know. the thing I did like. And so what I'm saying is like yeah. the suggestion that probably everyone has that this is a book about Dune, right? Sort of makes you feel like that whole first section is like not right. The point. The thing I will say is that what the first section does very well, and also the first, the first we'll talk about a little bit when he gets to Arrakis, is that. What, what Herbert does is, yeah, these are all pretty smart people that he's talking about, by and large, and yet they're smart people that are not omniscient, and indeed they make mistakes. There are blind mm-hmm. spots that they all have. And, like, that's a 
that's a tough thing to pull off, actually. And so, you know, it, it, it it's a contrast to, let's say, Ender's Game, where Ender is just, you know, the Ubermensch, yes. basically. Yeah. And so in that sense, it was, it was, it felt more grounded. And so that I did enjoy. And I also think that the stuff on Caladan gives you an appreciation for the strangeness of, of Dune, especially for Jessica and how out of her element she is and the I read rereading this again my admiration for her hmm. r- really increased oh that's interesting I mean even though she's a willing participant in a eugenics program because <laughs> um, <laughs> she's hates every minute of this you know like she's just miserable yeah and she's doing it for her son right you know and her love and I think there's you know that's there's heroism there yeah that's true so Okay, let's, let's move, move on. on. Yes, let's move on to Act Two: Trouble on Thirst Trap Planet Zero. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, that's you know what? That's actually really good, Dan. Thank that's, you. I was pretty. Pleased I just with have that to way. pause. Like that's that's good. Okay. I was moving with on. That. Okay. Uh, so the Duke Leto and his entourage arrive on Arrakis. The Duke, not being an idiot, knows that he is the target of plots and tries to build alliances with the spice smugglers, along with the Fremen, a nomadic desert tribe that are reputed to be legendary warriors and hate the Harkon and, you know, guts like you would not believe. They know that there's a traitor in their midst, the Duke, and suspicion starts to fall on Lady Jessica. Whoops, the traitor was actually the Souk Dr. Wellington Yue, a fact that none of the Duke's boys had figured out in time. U.S. sabotages the shield uh, that guards the Duke's palace that allows the Harkonnen and the Emperor's feared uh, Sardaukar troops into the Duke's redoubt. He arranges, Dr. Yue, arranges for Jessica and Paul to escape into the desert and gives the Duke a poisoned tooth to kill the person who turned him the villainous Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. And if you think that, like, I'm being cartoonish and calling him the villainous Baron Vladimir Harkonnen... Oh, boy. Speaking of cartoons... Yeah, like, this is... It's just, like... (laughs) This is a villain's Not villain. his best writing, no. not his best characterization. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Duke does attempt to kill the villainous Baron Vladimir Harkon. I think that's how I'm going to say it from now on in. Yeah. You know, crunches on the tooth, but only kills himself and the Baron's mentat. The Baron expropriates the Duke's old mentat, and Leto's other senior officers sort of scatter into these sort of smuggling trades of Ericus. Paul and Jessica do escape to the desert, uh, which is pretty treacherous territory. Water is everything there. Oh, yeah, by the way, there are giant sandworms prowling about, which is also what makes the spice mining relatively difficult. Plus, Jessica is pregnant, a fact that Paul intuits as the spice appears to be enhancing his considerable mental gifts. Paul and Jessica are saved by a Fremen tribe, and Paul proves his fighting and leadership medal and wins the trust of the Fremen. Anna, while I like this section of the novel, and this is really exciting because it's like the, the sort of turning of the tables and you see this sort of massive assault on Arrakis, and I appreciated that that Herbert really does stuff his book with strategic and flawed leaders. I still don't think that the grand strategy of the, the barren, villainous... <laughs> Villainous Baron Harkonnen Harkonnen makes any fucking sense whatsoever. Okay, so basically, they're trying to get rid of the Duke. And how do they do that? They put him in charge of the one planet that produces the spice that allows all of intergalactic commerce to operate. You know, there's a significant... And furthermore, you're doing this, you know, in a place where there's a significant rebel force. And you're going to put your political enemy in charge of this? I mean, to... To quote Robert Downey Jr., not a great plan. I have a theory that might explain what they are thinking, which is they are planning on sabotaging 
Duke Leto. Well, Leto. right, yes. Yeah. And, and they're going to make him the bad guy on the planet. They're going to somehow slow down the spice trade, mm-hmm. I think, by bribing the guild uh. and smugglers. Uh, there's a reference that the Harkonnens have stockpiled spice. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's correct, yes. Make a, make a killing on it when it becomes... Uh, less available. Good, good old market forces. Okay, there. see, I read that as just like general like graft and corruption. So, okay. I yeah. think that that's the plan. Now, what's weird is mm-hmm. they don't do that plan. No, they don't. Like, that was the other thing. Like, so like, you you know that like there's going, you know there's going to be attack on the Duke. You know that he, like he's supposed yeah. to be taken out. And how do they do it? And that's also weirdly not the the, the straight on attack yeah. by the Baron and Emperor's forces appears to be the one thing they haven't thought of. Right. <laughs> the House of Atreides. Yeah. Like, you're looking for the feints within feints within feints. But somehow, oh, they might just put a whole bunch of army folks on the planet and try to kill us right. doesn't come up as a thing that they might need to guard against. But also, to be fair, this is the other part I didn't quite get about this. The, the, presumably, the whole point of this plot was you were going to... Oh, actually, you know what? I, can rem- I remember why... They might not have expected Harkonnen to do what he because did. it was a really stupid fucking move, among other things. But yes, um, and also there's like this, there's sort of this uh, very delicate alliance among the great houses, right. and they're not really supposed to attack each other. Yeah. So this, I'll, actually, I'll mention this because it's going to come up more. Which is there's a lot of like really subtle politics mm-hmm. in this book. That's implied, like this whole, like, well, you're not supposed to go up against other houses. Right. And that's why they might not do it. Yeah. Some of it seemed too subtle for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so I, I agree with you that in some ways that's what makes this more jarring for me, which is I think a lot of the pol- Herbert handles a lot of the politics and a lot of the diplomacy extremely well. Like, I, mm-hmm. as someone who, who reads this thing with a jaundiced eye, I was like, okay. This is this is pretty good, but it makes the sort of full on assault and the like overarching strategy of how to to get rid of the Duke. It didn't make any sense to me, which is the whole point of this was the Duke was supposed to fall and no one was supposed to realize that the the Harkonnens were behind it, particularly the Emperor. (laughs) And like, I'm pretty sure I don't know how communication and information gets around. The Emperor was going to know about it. Because the emperor, but the secret, like his troops were supposed to be secret. Right. Though the emperor was obviously in on it, but no one else was supposed to know that the emperor right. was in on it. Right. Yes. And yes. So yes. My point is, is that if you're, if that's your plan, if that, that's what you want the outcome to be. Generally speaking, a frontal assault by the Harkonnen and the Sardaukar yeah. is not going to be the way to yeah. do that. So the, the Sardaukar were in Harkonnen uniforms. Oh now. God. Yes. All right. I, now, I think that's still a, not a very secure way of keeping that information, yeah. <laughs> like just putting them in different uniforms. Right. Apparently, since the Saduka are, are supposedly like incredibly uh, proud of their exploits and I don't know, might tell someone. Also, like, you we, know there are Sardaukar <laughs> tattoos. You know there are Sardaukar tats that indicate yeah. that give so, them and Also, everyone yeah. on the planet seems to realize right away yeah. that it's this. That's the other thing. And I think part of this was, was something that I wasn't sure about, which is it was very unclear how information would, you know, could get out of, of this sort of situation. And, like, you know, that was left unstated. And I think, frankly, was sort of Frank Herbert not... Like that was a delicate plot point that he couldn't really talk about because if you yeah, do, it's, it's it's funny because the, the the stuff that follows that is less. I keep calling that first part an intricate set of politics or mm-hmm. a subtle set of politics, and maybe what I'm really saying is it's not well done. <laughs> it's not that it's too subtle or too intricate. It just parts of it don't make sense, and that's why it feels hard to follow. I think it's frustrating because honestly, he because it, later on the stuff is much more easy to follow. Yeah. it's still interesting, right? And there's faints within faints within faints. Yeah, it, they keep saying, 
but it's easier to follow because it makes sense. In some ways, you know? I, way, I think what we both are reacting to is the same thing, which is, and, and I, this is where it's it's because Herbert does one thing really well, and then the other thing doesn't quite make sense. The thing he does really well is you you realize the Duke is, it, it's an interesting structure. The Duke and his family, who you automatically identify with, they're going somewhere and it's a trap. And it's a question of, will they manage to turn the tables on the trap or will the trap be sprung? And like, you know, how is that right. going to play out? That's all done incredibly subtly. And then suddenly... Poof! It's like you know. Oh, it turned out they didn't realize who the defector was. It's not so much a trap as an frontal attack, yes. which you know is not a trap. Right. That's not. I don't think technically a trap. Right. And there's a <laughs> lot of loose talk about how they need to make the duke die, but like no one knows how this happens, or like it's it's got to be it's got to look like an accident, as it were, or what have you, and yeah. like. Yeah, you know what? It's not going to look like an accident if you send your entire fucking force to invade the goddamn planet. That's not how this works. So, uh, oh, the the other thing that is weird mm-hmm. is that you pointed out the the Fremen are a noted like you know yeah. fighting force. They keep having the Harkonnens dismiss the Fremen, right? And as a reader, you're like, they're the only people that don't know. Yeah, that this is this incredibly savage, right. you know, I, and I don't shouldn't say savage. Be careful with the word savage. This incredibly fearsome mm-hmm. group of people who are disciplined and all fought, all trained to fight from you. They're swaddling clothes, mm-hmm. and it's the only Harkonnens who are like, ah, they're just a bunch of sand right. folks, and we're not going to pay attention to them. So that seems weird. Yeah, and I, you know. I guess, and the plot turns on this, by the way. Right. I mean, the plot turns on the Harkonnens being so racist against the Fremen <laughs> that they can't even conceive of them as doing well in battle. Right. And again, like part of the reason you wind up rooting for the Duke is that there, for the few brief moments that the Duke actually is in control in our because he like he's clearly exercised. And again, this was something I thought Herbert did really well. You show how wise political leadership can actually win gains. You know, he really does win the trust of some people that would uh, that, that know they should not fall in with him because they also recognize the, the trap that's being sprung. And so... Although, I'm not know. sure, like, if it's... Really, I guess it's... <laughs> we could sort of compare this to 28 Days Later, maybe. Mm. Which is to say, yes, the Duke wins the allegiance of these people by being kind to them. Yeah. And honoring promises. By being a decent human being. By being a decent human being. Like, his leadership skills do not, like, default to something along the lines of, I promise them women. Ah, fair enough. (laughs) Okay. True enough. (laughs) True enough. Anyway, uh, I think we need to move on. This is going to be... Come on. The book is 800 pages long. (laughs) So, this is going to be a little bit of a bonus episode in and of itself, let's say. (laughs) Come on. All right. Act three. Act three, Paul <laughs> becomes uh, Muad'Dib. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. but I always thought it was Maudib. Oh, but like, that makes sense. Uh, especially since Maudib is supposed to be for mouse, basically. So, yeah, yeah that makes sense. That's what I... Okay, thought. we'll go with Maudib. Anyway, we both have very different takes on the pronunciations yeah. of the names in this book. So, Paul takes the Fremen name of Maudib, meaning mouse. He also marries Chani, a Fremen woman that he saw in his prophecies while he was still on Caladan, and they have a son, Leto Jr. Jessica agrees to become the Fremen's reverend mother by drinking the water of life. This has a profound effect on her unborn daughter, Alia, who winds up becoming super precocious. You know all those like precocious little girls like in movies? Just to take that to the nth power, and that's what this girl is like, because she's basically... Uh, been... I believe the word uncanny would be the yeah. thing that Ooh, needs good. to apply here. That the works. Freudian sense, yes. uncanny. 
Paul learns that the Fremen can partially control the sandworms and are more numerous than anyone realizes and do have long-term plans to terraform Arrakis uh, so that water is much more plentiful. And again, one thing that Herbert does extremely well in this is make you appreciate the, the true water is life kind of feeling in a, on a world in which water is incredibly scarce to the point where people are all wearing suits in which they can essentially keep their moisture within them because mm-hmm. you don't want to lose any of it. Paul, in turn, teaches the Fremen, already a potent fighting force, the weirding ways of of battle. He also manages to reconnect with one of uh, his father's old henchmen, uh, Gurney Halleck. Meanwhile, the Baron appoints his idiot nephew, Robin, to run Arrakis with the idea that he will be loathed, and then the Baron will be able to replace him with the more cunning nephew or child, uh, Fade Rautha. The Emperor, however, sends his minion, the Count Fenring, to let the Baron know that he needs to get his shit together and that there are real problems on Arrakis. The Baron finds this meeting unsettling. Anna, one of the more interesting themes in this section is that Paul recognizes the sort of jihadic fervor and... Herbert uses the word jihad, which is kind of extraordinary yeah. because, again, this book came out in 1965. It's written in the early 60s. This is not a word that it was sort of common term of art in, in the English language. This is one of the reasons why there's a, the theory that he read that Sabres of Paradise uh, book. Yeah, um, so. which makes sense. But So he recognizes the jihadic fervor among the Fremen, but he also deeply, deeply fears it. And it's very clear. He And, and in this sense, Paul reminded me, you, it's interesting that you say Kennedy was one of the inspirations for for Paul because the person he reminded me of here is Obama, who is someone who is a gifted leader who nonetheless fears the corrosive effects of charismatic leadership. Well, Dan, they are both Muslim. So. <laughs> oh, boo! <laughs> boo! <laughs> Obama's not who I would have gone with, I guess, huh. um, in part because... You know, although maybe this means I'm just I'm not giving Obama enough depth as a person Hmm. when I say that. Although, to be fair, Obama does not let people find out much depth of him. He is he is one of the most skilled politicians in the history of the world to seem like he is revealing things about himself, Mm -hmm. but not actually telling us much at all or rather only letting us see what he wants us to see. Right. Because what I was going to say about Paul is that his ambivalence about the jihad Mm -hmm. is really interesting. Yeah. Like, he knows he must use that fervor to take back the planet, right? Mm -hmm. But he also sees the billions of deaths that could follow. Mm. And he... You know, he also knows perfectly well he could take himself out of the picture early on. Like, he could marry Shani Mm -hmm. and then, like, just have his kid. He has a vision. He at one point has a vision of doing this. uh, And honestly, one of the more, like, one of the best sci-fi elements of this book, I thought, is the idea that Paul repeatedly, is it Paul has to navigate between his memories, the present, and what what I would guess is his sort of memories of what the future could be. And his memories of what the future could be are multiple because, as you say, it's indeterminate. So, yeah, that was really good. I like that. So he could have, like, he's really scared of the jihad. Yeah. Like, you know what? As soon as he saw it coming, he could be like, you know what? I'm just going to be a nomadic <laughs> Fremen and like settle down with Chani. Just going to ride, ride my sandworm into the sunset, you know? Yeah, yeah. just not going to play a part in it. That might have done it, mm. you know? And I, I guess what I'm saying also is that I see in Obama, I wish I saw more of what I think that the Republican, or sorry, I shouldn't say Republican, um, sort of the, the Trumpist class sees him, which is this incredibly manipulative guy. I don't know. Like, they see feints within feints within feints for Obama, right? Oh, no. Th- that's... Th- and 
and you and I don't believe that about him. We know that that's not actually how politics yeah. really works. works. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting. Like, I think he's a lot like Paul in his suspicion of charisma. Yeah. That's what it mostly was. But we just don't know what he really thinks. I, like, that's that's what I'm saying. I guess the way like, I would put it is that, like... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, am, yeah. I making, am I making any sense at all about what I'm saying? Yes, you, you wish, you wish Obama had actually his... been as Machiavellian as his enemies <laughs> thought he was. Or at least we knew he was struggling with that. Right. Like, but I think we it, don't. You know. I guess the answer is, is that I always thought of... I mean, maybe we disagree on this, but I think, you know, to the extent that Obama did show himself showed aspects of his personality. The thing that I admire about Obama as a politician, and I think the, I honestly think this makes him unusual among all the presidents in our lifetime, is that Obama was genuinely uncomfortable with power. And he was uncomfortable with the the ways in which you could get things wrong. And, and if you really want to go like political theory on this, Michael Okashaw talks a lot about the politics of doubt. And the thing about Obama is, is that he was always sort of a skeptic of the ability to actually exercise and marshal large numbers of people to do something that he simultaneously liked it, but he also feared it. Uh, okay. Okay. I, all right. I'm making, I think a very subtle distinction that maybe I shouldn't be making then, mm-hmm. which is that he, I believe Obama to have been suspicious of power in the sense that he was not sure you could really get people, get it together to do shit. Mm-hmm. Right, that he was suspicious of it in the way that I think you and I and many people who follow politics are, which yeah. is that it, there aren't feints within feints within feints. Right, exactly. That's you not know, how it works. You, you cannot rely on sheer power to get things done. Yeah. You cannot rely on sheer charisma yeah. to get things done. Mm-hmm. But he definitely tried to use it. He wasn't so suspicious of those things. That oh he no! Didn't yeah, I, try to use them. Right. Agreed. Whereas, like, I guess when I read suspicion, like, I'm like, oh, that made you make you hesitant. He seemed not hesitant at all. Oh no! To, like, I think he was. I mean, it was use the powers that he could, including charisma. Yes, I, I guess the way I would put it is that he did use it, but I also think like. Oh, but he didn't feel great about it. But, yeah. Oh, you know, but, but like, this, maybe we're, we're getting too much into know. psychoanalysis. Yeah. Like, Obama let's let's. This, this is the end of the. You know put politician on the couch comedy hour yes. which is our other podcast <laughs> all right let's move to act four better call paul paul sees the harkonnen and sardaukar forces amassing an orbit and the emperor's presence on the planet he sees a lot of these things he does not see that those forces were going to raid his southern redoubt capturing his sister and killing his son leto too behind the <laughs> mother of all sandstorms paul his fedekin and uh, the rest of the Freeman forces overwhelm the enemy and capture the Emperor's entourage as well as the Baron. Paul is also, by the way, drunk the water of life himself uh, and lived to tell the tale, thereby fulfilling the prophecy that he is the, and I, I swear to God I'm going to massacre this name. I, no one actually knows how to Okay, I'm going to say... It's a little known secret. Like the, no one, There is no correct pronunciation. The Kwisatz Haderach. You know, I, this part of me that wants... With the Semitic... Hold on. Let me do the Semitic version of this, given where the, the origins oh. are. The yeah. Kwisatz Haderach. I believe that probably is... It, again, the legend has there is no correct pronunciation. Oh, I like that. Okay, that's good. But I, I like that last one. All right. So. Paul demands that the emperor abdicate and that he marry uh, Irulan, his daughter, thereby resolving the galactic conflict. The emperor is not keen about this, and the baron is super not keen about this. But the baron dies, and Paul defeats Fade Rautha in combat. So it's a done deal, with Chani sticking on as his concubine. Paul wins! All the truthsayers, however, can envision the jihad to come. Anna, I liked a lot of this book. I really enjoyed this more than I was expecting, to be honest. But... 
the villains are only fleshed out literally and not metaphorically. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yeah, like I said, I think yeah. the fat phobia stuff, the, the fat hatred was really tough to, for me, like cringy wise. Again, this is something that our culture has sort of really getting in a popular way. People are, are only talking about recently. So I think it, if people were not as bothered by it as I was, I, I understand. <laughs> I will say one thing I did like, and I, this is a weird thing, and I'm perfectly willing to be shot down on this. There was sort of a weird gender thing where, like, the Baron has to wear essentially the high-tech girdle, as it were. Was it suspense? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I think that's I, th- I think that's intentional. Well, yeah. s- somewhat intentional. Right. Like, I think he's a, fem- he's a feminine. Right, you know? okay. So it's, it's two things. Like, he's grossly fat. Right. And every time he comes on the scene, there is a description of his fatness <laughs> every single time. Like, I started to keep track of it. Oh, okay, fair enough, like, yeah. That Herbert does not let him enter a room without somehow <laughs> referencing how fat he is. The, so, okay, fine. The fine. villainous, corpulent Baron von Yeah, yeah. I, I will add that one of my very favorite authors in the world, Stephen King, mm-hmm. used to do this a lot in his books as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just an easy kind of like, how do you make sure people know that someone is greedy and right. fat and you just make them fat, you know? Like, whatever. Maybe he would have written it differently today. I don't know. I also agree that, like, the villains are really fucking villainous, and there's no kind of... Yeah, unlike Stephen King, I will say, there is absolutely no redeeming quality to any of them. They're not complicated at all. Like, there's no sense of, like, oh, I see why this person is doing this. There's a human being underneath all this that's, like, struggling with something. Whereas, like, Paul, for instance, is our hero, but very complicated. Yeah. You know, very ambivalent. No, there's an early scene in the book where, like, the Baron is literally explaining his... The Baron is monologuing his plot. Yeah. And, like, it's like... Literally, all I was waiting for was, like, Herbert to write... And then he twirled his mustache. Because, like, that was was the level at which that was written. (laughs) I also will say, though, um, Count Finring... For some reason, leapt out at me as like kind of amusing in this this read. Like I kind of appreciated that, although well, it bothered me that apparently he's a feminine way of talking uh, with all the ums and the errs. Well, he was the one like he was the one bad guy, as it were, who I found interesting. Yeah, had a story. Yeah, had a story, yeah, and like he, he was a bad guy with this interesting. Story. And I love I, I I did love the conversation he had with the Baron, where it was very clear the Baron is an idiot. Yes. Yes, that is like, there's some parts of this that are really good yeah. politics, like good subtle politics. Right. I guess, again, those are places that where it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, speaking of politics, Dan, I have a question for you. Go, Dan. Go, go ahead, Anna. Is there IR in this book? Anna, there is a spicy amount of IR in this book. <laughs> um, so there- A worm load, maybe? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> So there is a little bit about preventive war, which uh, preventive war is a, a problem in IR in which, generally speaking, a waning hegemonic power might choose to launch a war when they perceive a rising challenger, could displace them. And in that scenario, it makes sense to launch a war while you are still the stronger party because you are worried that if you don't do anything, if you, you know, just continue to try to accommodate, eventually the rising challenger becomes so powerful that you can't do anything. And we learn that the emperor apparently agreed to the attack on Arrakis because he fears that the duke had trained a fighting force potentially equal to the Sardaukar. That said, I'm not, again, I'm going to call bullshit on Herbert's use of this theory. It does not hold up uh, because in the description of what's going on, everyone acknowledges that the Sardaukar is a much larger fighting force than the duke's smaller force. And the only reason that this is a problem is because they send the duke to Arrakis. 
Marcus, which again seems like a tactically questionable move. Yes. Sorry. Because yeah. the, o- the only thing that solves the problem of why he might be threatened by the Duke yeah. is that he re- is that the Emperor appears to be somewhat cognizant of the fact that the Fremen could be a fighting right. force. Right. And so, like, but then don't send him to Arrakis. Yes, exactly. Keep him on Kaladin, all right? And Kaladin, he's going to be a pain in the ass. He's, he's not going to have a large force. There's going to be just a bunch of softies. Yeah, exactly. A bunch of decadent softies living on Kaladin. Yeah, there is some kind of uh, Lovecraftian suspicion of decadence in yes. this book, by the way. Speaking of Lovecraftian, much ah. like Lovecraft, uh, ah. this is a book about the rise and fall of civilizations. And I think I rooted around in the internet, and I don't think Frank Herbert ever read a guy named Ibn Khaldun, who is a 14th century uh, Muslim writer, a sort of Muslim Machiavelli, as it were, um, who wrote uh, his magnum opus was a book called the Makidama. But this is there's a lot of Ibn Khaldun in this book. So Ibn Khaldun argued that there was essentially a four-generation life cycle to civilizations in which, you know, a civilization starts out in a hard scrabble existence, sort of Bedouin, you know, life of the desert, and they're therefore hardened and toughened. And then as they move into the city, they become somewhat softer, as it were. But that said, that, that Ibn Khaldun believed that the harsh environmental conditions would lead to a society hardened by the climate and suffused with what is called group feeling, or I believe the Arabic word for this is sabia. I, I apologize profusely if I mispronounce it. As that society, however, shifts from the desert to urban life, they get soft, the group feeling inevitably dissipates, and this certainly fits the sort of description in Dune of what the emperor is doing, um, and it'll be, it would actually be interesting to know in sense of reading the future books whether this also applies to the Fremen, particularly if they actually succeed in terraforming Ericus. I'm not entirely sure. There is also the theme of weaponized interdependence in this book. <clears throat> yes, Anna? Professor. Yes, yes. I seem to recall this coming up earlier in class. It has, yes, yes. Uh, when we were discussing The Expanse. Allow me to try and remember <laughs> what that was. See if I can, you know, score here. Excellent intervention, uh, Anna. Thank you. It had to do with the entry point to the other worlds. That is the choke point. The choke point yes. effect, yes. So the ring gates in, the, in, the, in yes. the expanse. In this case, in the case of Dune, it is clearly the spice. Because it is very clear that without the spice, no one can travel from planet to planet because the spacing guild lacks the ability to, to engage in navigation. So in the world of Dune, control of the melange is the you know network power. So, and I hate to repeat this theme, I don't get why they <laughs> set the trap for the Duke on this planet. This is the one planet you cannot afford to lose. So really, really dumb. Yeah, and then there's the, the self-defeating. If To the extent I think they had a plan, it would be self-defeating to, like you know uh put a chokehold on the supply of spice yeah. like why would you it's just a really high risk stupid strategy is all i can say it, it doesn't yeah, make any it's, sense and it is funny like that sets this whole thing off all the other politics that follow right are are intelligible and make sense yes and, are, and smart Which, and i would say the best bits of this book as far as i'm concerned in terms of the politics is there really are is first class stuff in this book on sort of individual leadership on strategy and on diplomacy. Honestly, like, you know, there's 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 a lot of it. There was one saying I loved that, that, you know, Jessica repeats at various times, which is beginnings are such delicate times. And there's a lot of interesting sort of, you know, how does Paul win over the Fremen and how does the Duke try to win over the Fremen and, and so forth. And even the negotiations between, you know, the Baron and the Count and so forth. Like there there's lots of stuff about that. The Duke's obsession with desert power is legitimately good and suggests that he was not actually an idiot and that that was the right way to think about it. Although I will say in that particular passage, yeah. it it's kind of a little pedantic. It's hilariously pedantic because he goes, we had air power right. and sea power. And here on this planet, we have 
Desert power. Desert power. But it's the kind of thing a politician would say. Like I could, t- if Joe Biden was on our case, he totally would have said that. Yes. Is what I'm saying. Yes. Would have think he was like really get, dropping a bomb on you. Yeah. Exactly. You know. Yeah. It's like wait till I blow in your what mind. I've come up with. Exactly. Um, Desert power. Right. Okay. But the Duke, uh, and then and then Paul saying, I mean that literally. Yeah. 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 Joe Biden. <laughs> and the Paul and Paul saying the people who can destroy a thing they control it. Legitimately interesting thing. I don't think it's entirely true, but there is a, a significant grain of truth to it. So there is actually a lot of really interesting IR in this book, and I'm very glad as a result that we did that, did this book for the podcast. But this then, of course, leads to another question that I have. Anna? Dan? Did you find a way to point out the evils of capitalism in this book? <laughs> <laughs> Dan, this is a book about monopoly capitalism. There we that go. is what it is about, mm-hmm. right? And I think we can sort of, again, so I have the opinion the authorial intent can be jettisoned at some points. But I will really say, mm-hmm. like, I think it, you don't have to kind of go postmodern here no. to say that whatever he intended, this is a critique of monopoly capitalism. Yeah. I found a quote on Twitter. I do not remember who said it, but it it is apropos. Every Marxist I know has put more energy into trying to get me to read Dune than Das Kapital. <laughs> and <laughs> I like that you have Dune as the gateway drug in the capital. And the it, there's a reason why, if you were you, you wanted to turn turn your friends, you might have them read Dune mm-hmm. rather than Das Kapital. Although Das Kapital is pretty well written. And I think that, yeah, it's impossible to read this book without thinking, you know, and seeing illustrated like what happens. And, you know, when you are you live and die by the market. Mm -hmm. I also think it's really interesting. And again, intention or not, uh, that having spice be the commodity Mm -hmm. does harken back to real world imperialism, as you know. Mm The spices and, and, you know, exotic agriculture products are real things that, yeah. that people fought wars over, that, that people were enslaved over. Although, I, you know? I mean, I will say, I think it is generally agreed that the, the spice in the book is really sort of supposed to be a, a metaphor for oil in terms of the... Well, yeah, the, but I also think it's interesting that it's like, I want to just remind people oh, that... Oh, no, 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 I, I agree with that, but like... <laughs> there's a there's yeah. a there's a historical, like, rhyming going on. But again, here. mostly yeah. I'm actually legit impressed that Herbert in the early 60s wrote a book pointing out resource yeah. dependence on oil, which was not something that anyone was really thinking about at the time. And uh, I also, for my final performance, here, <laughs> no, sorry, and for my, my final trick, mm-hmm. I want to point out that spice is capitalism, too. Whoa. It is pervasive. Whoa, my mind is blown right now. Mind-altering. Mm. Addictive. Actually, no, this is this is a legitimately great point, because one of the things I'm intrigued by in the book is that I don't know about you. I wasn't sure I wanted any spice when I was reading this yeah, book. Yeah, and I'm also not entirely kidding when I say it that yeah. way. It is sort of like the perfect metaphor in a way. Yeah. And and why it works as for oil as right. well, which is not so much mind altering, but it's pervasive and addictive. But no, but Herbert you makes know. it very like, you know, Herbert, the, the discussion of spice in the book is fascinating because he makes it very clear. A, it's addictive. And if you have too much of it and then are cut off, you will die. And yet it's clearly integral for the entire like galactic economy, as it were. But like I, the way he talks about it, made it such that it was like, you know, no, this this seemed like I, I prefer coffee to spice um, is the way I would put it. <laughs> but there is spice coffee. Dan. There we go. Actually, that's the one thing that I was like, I wonder what that's like. Is that like a chai? What what would that taste like? I think it probably would be chai. Yeah. That's my, just my guess. Yeah. You remind me yeah. as far as like your suspicion of taking spice and how might you not, you might want to not get addicted right. to it the baron is really proud of how he gets the duke's mintat this subtle poison yes <laughs> that if he withdraws the antidote he'll die right. 
why not just make him addicted to something or just poison him later? Yeah. Like there's this weird thing of like, he thinks he's being so smart, but also not telling the person that you're not poisoning yeah. them. Also, he's a mentad. You that don't think seems he's, weird. Also, he's a mentad. You don't think he's going to figure this out, for fuck's sake? I mean, you know. It, and also, it turns out to have no meaning whatsoever. Right. Like, yeah, no, it, it, that was a weird thing where it was like, okay, see Chekhov's gun? Chekhov's gun is right here. And then it doesn't yeah. matter. Like, he, he dies off camera. he towards it multiple times. He's like, let me tell you about my brilliant plan right. about this mentad, you know? No, the only, and, the only thing the Baron does that I actually did think was clever was the idea that he was going to appoint the really dumb nephews with the idea that then Fade Routha would come in and like seem as the more competent nephew. Which seems like that was sort of what the so-called trap was with the dude. Except the 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 same guy, the dumb nephew, was the ruler of Arrakis beforehand as well. So it made no sense. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) No. No. Dan, we we have to sort of wrap up our sort of general critique of the book and get right to the point. Is Dune mm-hmm. canon or is it fodder? Anna, my vote is for mostly, not entirely, but mostly canon. First of all, it, it, just from a politics perspective, I was, as I said, I was legit impressed with Herbert's book because for a book in the early 60s, this is incredibly prescient on resource politics, on environmental politics, and actually a little bit on the politics of the Middle East, which is, you know, basically how do, how do a subjugated people in a part of the world where there is an extremely valuable commodity react. And so there's a lot of stuff that almost seems banal if you read it now because you've, you're familiar with this terminology that I'm sure in the 1960s might have seen particularly you know weird or strange. And you know I think you get props for, for, for that. Also, I really liked it because this is not a book about the tech per se. And indeed, like Herbert clearly sets it up with things like the Butlerian Jihad and so forth takes pains to avoid much talk of tech. And, like, even to the extent of, like, he talks about atomic weapons and atomics, you know, but also basically sort of says, yeah, but no, you know, it's mutually assured destruction, so that's not really going to happen and and so forth. And, again, I I like that part of it. It's really, it's about how humans react to struggle and constraint and so forth. He basically hand waves tech. Yeah away like he just sort of he gets out of having to like make up technology by being like yeah just uh, there's none right and there's ways in which like tech can be done well like the expanse is incredibly good on like this is what the tech part is and that's important but like i I didn't have a problem with what herbert did there but also like you know having read it i can now see dune's legacy everywhere in terms of stuff we've talked about and stuff we will talk about so like i can't you can't see firefly now without thinking about Dune, The Expanse, I think, is also, you know, the whole idea of Mars terraforming itself made me think of Arrakis. And even things like Game of Thrones, you know, to some extent, like, had, I think, aspects of Dune in it. So that that's definitely all canon. In terms of fodder, yeah, so, you know, I'm, not surprisingly, the gender stuff could have been handled <laughs> a little bit better. Um, you know, it's not... I don't want to defend it, but I'm like, it wasn't awful it was just so goddamn stereotypical and essentialist that i i found it not terribly interesting but again like again in terms of firefly the idea of like concubines as being you know escorts or, or being like valued I, I sort of thought about lady jessica there you know whatever so but not the biggest thing in the world and then also as i said the, the baron being gay and fat seemed like a big fat stereotype for lack of a better <laughs> way of putting it so yeah anna what about you canon or father uh I thought this was an either-or question, Dan. Um, <laughs> so I'm just going to say canon, yeah. but yes, with reservations. Right. I think you have to mention eugenics as a problem here. 
all this talk of race consciousness, which I'm willing to forgive, is just a weird term in a yeah, way. Yeah, like that he's was actually, He's talking about the human race. Right, exactly. But there are two eugenics programs happening in this book. One is the Benet Gesserit. Gesserit. Yeah. Gesserit. And then the Fremen actually are pretty fucking eugenicist about their own people like they have this attitude towards life that's like weakest go yeah that's true. no more yeah. like we will not support anyone that cannot support themselves yeah, and also like the whole point of like every the, oh this person's dead all right let's divvy up the water you know like that was gross yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so i mean it's not as aggressive as the benet uh yeah. but it's pretty it's a pretty only the strongest survive kind of look at the world this might be also like it's not that i disagree with you but i think part of the this might be where i like it's just bad writing by herbert because like i know that every, all the criticism of dune is like there's eugenics the benet gesserit is like a practicing eugenics and yet in the actual text it wasn't something that i it, oh it, it's well, referenced yeah. but it's like not eh, oh no, no like, i'm not okay. denying that it, it's clearly there but it was never fully explained to me or i didn't feel it's like, not explained yeah. but like there is reference to breeding a lot right. like in again once you're kind of looking for it like um at some point i believe it is paul talking to stilgar mm-hmm. and he's so impressed by stilgar he says whence comes such breeding oh god you know <laughs> like which suggests yeah fair enough <laughs> Actually, I feel bad because I didn't... Everyone in this novel thinks that the way that you get to be smart or whatever is because your parents, right. you know? And I feel bad, like, by the way, because you... I didn't mention Stilgar in the plot summary, and he's actually a really interesting character, so that was... Yeah. He is a very interesting character. Yeah. Yes, you should feel bad, Dan. You should. <laughs> and the, the gender essentialism is, I mean, the whole fucking plot mm. is based on the fact that women can't do this one thing. This one thing they can't do that for some reason a man can do. <sighs> yeah. And I, th- that also, but if you start to question that, you start to question the whole program because it's like, why couldn't you just figure out how, for how, how to get it, breed a woman that could do it, you know? <laughs> yes. Like, what exactly is, like, the Y chromosome thing here that is keeping a woman from doing I'm pretty it? sure Alia could have done it, by the way, if she had grown they, up. They yeah. imply that it's fear, by the yeah. way. Fear is the that mind killer. Women are just too scared to go there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I disagree. I think there's... I think women are made of pretty fucking sturdy stuff. If you have to bleed once a month and push out things that go on to grow to be six feet tall, like, come on. I like, I am too scared to even, like, mildly yeah. accept from that. I'm going to agree. Yeah. Um, but on the Candon side, yeah. it's just, it is just really good. Yeah. Like I've said, like, it's just really well written. I've tried to read some of the sequels. They are not as good. Yeah. Um, in my opinion although i those are ones that are just slow going for me and maybe i'll try harder now i wanted to read a couple of the lines that i particularly liked the undemanding emptiness of her words helped restore some calm Mm. and i just like the undemanding emptiness of her words is a real powerful phrase Mm. and then this is about jessica she felt the chill of the price on their heads which is again just very I'm not reading. And, and then there are longer passages about the desert, which are beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's one of the most vivid books I've read in a long time in genre, especially. I feel like a lot of genre writers, you get to lean on tropes a lot in describing stuff like, oh, it's a spaceship, you know, like it's a desert, whatever. And I mean, Herbert clearly loved ecology and the environment. And he thought a lot about the different kinds of sand you know, and the different colors they would be. And as you say, and it makes it interesting. His pol- that, that makes his politics kind of interesting because it's it's rare that you combine libertarianism with 
with, I guess, environmentalism. Well, there is actually a long history of environmentalism, libertarianism, and eugenics that is, you know, uh, has to do with the Pacific Northwest, Ah. which, as I'm sure you know, like the state of Oregon was founded as a white state. Yes. um, But also very much an environmentalist Mm -hmm. settlement. So anyway... Fun stuff to read about there if you're curious. And again, this is ultimately a very satisfying indictment of power and capitalism. You know, like, it's funny because I realized at some point in my life that Paul wasn't a hero, like even without rereading it, like just having more life experience and rethinking who my heroes were. And also having had the experience of rereading The Fountainhead at some point and being like, oh, Anna. (laughs) Oh, 13-year-old Anna, you poor thing. Like, <laughs> no, I, what were you thinking? Um, so I said something on uh, the Discord about how, like, I don't know. I think uh, Frank Herbert's the only person that doesn't realize that that Paul's a monster. And now I know because I've also know, find out more about the you know the sequels. He knows Paul is. A oh monster. yeah, 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 yeah. And I think anyone with some degree of subtlety can can see that in this book Mm -hmm. you know that he may be a sympathetic monster no you identify with paul particularly in the first half of the book but 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 but, no no like as someone who has not read any of the sequels and i'll talk about this in a second but like someone who's not read them i was like yeah this is okay this seems like a happy ending it's not going to be a happy ending that was that was well also when he starts like they 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 actually at first I th- assumed that it was sort of, you know, uh, inflated legend that the Fremen were, you know, uh, making their war drums out of the skin of their enemies and mm-hmm. putting, pi- putting pikes on the heads. But it turns out it sounds like that's true. That is actually what they're doing, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is gross. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. And to be human in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Dan, do you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> actually, now I'm doing like rapping. <laughs> What I meant to do was imitate the sound of debris. Yes. Pinging off of our, our ship here, our, our, our podcast ship. We've entered the debris field. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything you want to mention that we haven't already talked about? Yet? Just two small things. The first is, is that one of the odder things about the book is the there are quotes from the, in the beginning of each of the chapters, which I think are told from like future histories of the events that we are reading in real time. And they kind of seem like spoilers, to be honest. Like, for, <laughs> in the sense of, like, when, as I was reading, it was like, oh, okay, so Paul's clearly going to win. And, like, yeah, so, like, you know, that was a little bit spoiler alert, which I wasn't crazy about. And the second thing is, I'm honestly not sure whether I need to read the sequels or not. Like, should I read the next one? Because it, it's... My understanding is is that the quality really starts to deteriorate, but like, would just reading the next one, where I assume Paul turns into a bloodthirsty dictator, be worth like sort of being the mirror image of this one? And I'm honestly not sure. So yeah, spoiler alert for the rest of the Dune series. Yeah, he apparently does turn into a, a bloodthirsty dictator, and also his grandson actually becomes a spice worm somehow. Becomes like a spice worm. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it was like in one weird. of the essays that I wrote, read that was m- making this argument that, that Herbert is not really defending. Again, he said his politics are weird because yeah. he, he doesn't seem to be offering a defense of capitalism at no, all. No, 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 no. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, he seems, I, I think his rather jaffy idea is this kind of communal life that the Fremen have, right? Like, that would be his ideal way of hmm. exist. His economy, I, I think, would be like we share and share alike, except the your water is the tribes but as far as my debris 
I thought that Peter, the mintet of the Baron, being actually not too smart, yes, um, was kind of fun because he's depicted as being a genius, mm-hmm. and I, it, that doesn't really like figure shit out, which I kind of liked. It's it's good to have the non competent villains sometimes. <laughs> yes, I could have done without the frequent reminders of how bad the Fremen smell. Mm. Like I felt like okay, all right, I got it. You know, like not a lot of water in the desert. They're not taking baths. Yeah. Okay. You know, like, we don't need to hear, like, it, you know, the smell of excrement hitches nostrils or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Also, they have bat carrier pigeons or something. Yeah, I was like, I, I kept thinking about it like ravens from, like, Game of Thrones or owls from But Harry except Potter. they appear to actually whisper. They, they actually communicate. vocal yeah. <laughs> Apparently people speak bat. Or, like, I wasn't clear. Yes. yes. Or I think there's something in it, one of the appendixes, I think, that appendices, um, that the you you can briefly change like the vocal structure of the bat like becomes able to speak English so it just like echoes back the thing that the person said I don't know I would have liked more detail and I confess I did not like, actually read all the appendices <laughs> I apologize I didn't do the work and then yeah I guess I just want to say again that Lovecraftian thing is something I hadn't noticed before mm-hmm. there's a, it's many asides to decadence <laughs> being very bad yeah shouldn't have decadence um, but speaking of decadence hot sci-fi summer. This is we're going to be decadent, Dan. It's going to be, we're going to indulge ourselves. Oh. This is going to be some fun stuff. Yeah, there is are. no yeah. slog <laughs> in hot sci-fi summer. Exactly. And we're starting with, like I said, uh, some Marvel Universe stuff, Black Widow, and then Loki. I am enjoying Loki very, very much. <laughs> and I would like to actually point out, I was going to do this earlier, that now we have, um, uh, Loki is also part of hot sci-fi queer summer. I guess so. That's because true. Because yes. it is now canon that he is bi. Yes, that's correct. I believe that's not been canon before. I think it's just been sort of implied that he's a hedonist, which is also kind of a weird thing that people just think about bisexual people that like, oh, they just like everything. <laughs> and it's probably a little more complicated than that. And I actually think they they kind of, they allow that existence in this. It's not actually in the, in the I'm sorry to go on in this, but I'm thinking about it because it's interesting. It is, the way they gesture at it isn't that he's a hedonist. It's actually that he just has both kinds of lovers. Yes. You yes. know? If you have seen that episode, sorry if you haven't seen that episode, mm-hmm. but that's only the tiniest of spoilers. Right. Given we'll be talking about series. it in a few weeks, though. Yes. And then we have Victories Greater Than Death. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff, which I promise I will post to the Patreon so people can start getting excited. There's a lot of movies and TV shows because I will say we've pretty much our hot sci-fi summer. But like we have actually indulgence. pretty much sketched out the rest of the calendar year in terms of what we're doing. So, you know, we have, although we reserve the right to, you know do something different. I was mm-hmm. watching the pretty terrible tomorrow. I was going to talk about night. that. Like I, I have, so I'm only like a third of the way through it, but I was wondering if we needed to do a special episode. And also I, we might a little, this is like, there's a small part of it wants to do fast and furious nine, because apparently they go into space at one point in fast and furious nine. All right. I think maybe like, all right, listeners, we're Dan and I are going to talk about maybe talking about the tomorrow war, <laughs> just because I think it would be fun. Okay. We could do like 15 minutes. Yeah. And that is actually, I will say, for patrons, uh, we are planning on doing more of that kind of thing, of doing just really short episodes for patrons only, Mm -hmm. uh, because there's something that Dan and I would probably talk about anyway. (laughs) And if we're going to talk about it, you get to listen that way. Might as well have you guys luck out on the listening Mm -hmm. end of that. 
And then, uh, Dan, could you remind them what are some other reasons they might want to become patrons? Again, you get access to the Discord channel, which is a bunch of really groovy people that I only occasionally interact with, but that Anna does more. And more importantly, they interact with each other. And so it's a nice little community. You also get uh, early access to, of course, all of the episodes. And if in some of the higher contribution levels, you get pretty decent swag, is my understanding. Yes, and of course, if we get to 250 paying patrons, which we got to 100, I feel like not not that slowly. Right. Like it happened and now I'm looking at the patron <laughs> count and it's really, really feels like we're, we're maybe topping out or something. But come on, guys, no. if you even if you you can't afford to be a patron, actually yourself, maybe one of your friends or family can. <laughs> like Maybe you can find patronage to or become a patron. Be, you, or you could join up. Who go. knows? Yeah. Like I offer that idea. again. Somehow it's split, not a split a patron. I'm going to stress it's not a lot of money. You can be a patron for as little as three dollars a month. So. And, and we are and we are very much not making money. No. <laughs> One final excellent reason to become a patron is that if you become a patron, you will help us support Karen and more importantly, make it possible for Karen to keep her dog Alwyn full of kibble. Yes. And again, I will actually say in a little more seriousness, if you can't afford to, to, to be a patron, that's fine. Everyone has priorities mm-hmm. and maybe two politics wonks talking about science fiction is not a high priority but you still like the show rate and review us um do tell your friends and neighbors Mm -hmm. we just love that people care (laughs) and and that want to hear this so very much appreciate everyone who's listening right now for sure and um, we're excited about doing more with this show and we're excited about hot sci-fi summer and dan until next time keep this channel open for more